When you have something shipped, whether it's a bottle of wine, some tech gadgets, or even furniture pieces, they need protection. The white, lightweight material is polystyrene, also known as styrofoam. Widely used for transportation, it is hardly recycled, and 40% of it ends up in a landfill. What if there would be an alternative that uses waste and creates a fully renewable alternative using fungi, which per definition can safely go back into the earth? Today you will hear from Paul Gilligan, the CEO of the Magical Mushroom Company. He spent 14 years at the supermarket chain Sainsbury's in a range of senior roles where he won a number of industry awards. It's quite fascinating to learn how we can create packaging from fungi. So let's jump right in. You're listening to season two on plastic alternatives. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. For resources and to get involved, visit redtogreen.solutions. And I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Paul, thank you for being on Red to Green. Very welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yeah. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You too. So tell the listeners me a bit about the Magical Mushroom Company. What are you all about? Right. Yeah. Well, we are the exclusive licensees for packaging for Ecovative in the UK uh, and most recently the whole of the EU. So we take Ecovative's technology on binding mycelium and agricultural waste to produce bespoke packaging to replace polystyrene. That's our raison d'etre, if you like. And our goal is to really displace polystyrene as much as we can. And for people who are not familiar with what polystyrene is, so where would you usually encounter it? Yeah, good question. I mean, the colloquialism is polystyrene, but really it's EPS or any foams that are tertiary or secondary packaging for products being sent to people's homes or delivered. So for a good example, that would be anyone that's bought television recently would find a lot of white polystyrene, which will take a number of weeks to get back. Um, you can't put it in your bin, or not for me, you can't get much of it in the bin. It can't be really recycled, um, or it can be recycled, but it rarely gets recycled. And it takes roughly a thousand years plus to go, you know, to for the degradation of polystyrene, where ours is, 35 days and styrofoam is one kind of polystyrene yeah so it's a styrofoam how it's normally uh, the colloquialism in, in the us if you like and some parts of europe is styrofoam and in the uk it's polystyrene so yeah the, the, the same thing all derived from fossil fuels how does the packaging that you're doing differ from the packaging that is usually used we've got solutions for for a number of different categories you know, from FMCG, food, drinks, um, health and beauty, household goods, consumer goods. We try and replicate it, really. So clients will come to us with their with their problem. And the problem is they, they want to get rid of polystyrene. Um, I mean, a live example of that would be a company called Rain Marine, who are a marine navigation company. So antennas and things, circuit boards and TV screens. So they, they've been using polystyrene for a long time, but they've got a relationship with the ocean. So of course, they want to get rid of it. So we did a prototype to match the incumbent solution, a polystyrene, it was a foam, and we managed to do it. It went through a testing house and equaled the performance. Um, aesthetic, it looks better. So we replaced that like for like. 
and then we're going to replace all those over the coming two years. So really, we're looking at a straight, straight replacement for polystyrene mm-hmm. geometry and performance. Mm-hmm. Which is freaking fantastic because oftentimes the home compostable or industrially compostable solutions don't reach the performance level of uh, classic plastic products. What you're doing, so the mycelium packaging is home compostable, right? That's right, yeah. So, so there's a difference between industrial compostable and home compost, which I'm sure your listeners will all be aware of. But the difference with ours is that whilst it's very strong, once you break it down, and we'll talk about them, I'm sure we'll talk about the process shortly, but when you do, when you have finished with that product home, it's designed for single use. You break it up with your hands into as smaller bits as possible, and then it starts to biodegrade, uh, mixing with the soil. And it takes around 40 days. We've got a time-lapse video done with a client recently, Seedlip, who were owned by Diageo, and they did a time-lapse and they actually put seeds with it. So whilst it went back to the earth, it created life with these seeds and it went 40 days. It's a good point because also, you know, we, we are truly a circular economy company and product because we are binding the mycelium with agricultural waste. So... In the main, in our plant in Eastern, in the UK, we use hemp shivs, which is a byproduct of the hemp industry, which is typically used to line the stable floor for, for livestock to sleep on during the winter. We have other things. We have cork, sawdust. We've got one big brewer, which I can't tell you who they are at the moment because it's, it's not been announced yet, but they're using some of their, not the post-brewery waste, um, but the rejected hops. So they're actually using packaging from their waste which is a great story. To build startups that change the industry not only requires capital, but also the relevant know-how and valuable connections. Check out our partner Atlantic Food Labs, an early stage investor and venture studio for startups. Founded in 2016, the Berlin-based investor is one of Europe's leading venture firms for food and agriculture, investing in exciting topics such as alternative proteins, water supply, vertical farming, solutions for food waste and carbon reduction. Led by the vision to feed 10 billion people by 2050 in a sustainable and healthy way, Atlantic Food Labs has supported over 20 mission-driven founding teams to launch their ideas. For example, they've invested in Legendary, the cultured milk startup featured in our episode 4, making real cheese without cows. Mush Labs, making meat alternatives from fungi and gorillas designing the future of grocery shopping. And now, back to today's episode. Can you describe to our listeners, first and foremost, what is the difference between mushroom versus fungi and mycelium? Of course, yeah. I mean, mycelium and mushrooms are all from the fungi family. I mean, they're not fungi. It's not a plant. It's not an animal. It's something in between. So mycelium is a root structure of, of mushrooms rather than the fruity mushrooms themselves. You can also the worldwide wood, we like to call it, rather than the worldwide web. It, it, it can be some of the biggest organisms in the world, uh, mycelium. But, so we don't work with the mushrooms. We just, so a good analogy is that we're working with the plant cuttings rather than the flower itself. Mm. So before it fruits, we intervene and get it to, to digest the, the feedstock, namely the hemp in our case, into a, a bespoke tray. If you start out with waste, right? 
you have waste, yeah. you have product that you should be creating a certain form. How do you get yeah. from waste to product? <laughs> well, I suppose the main thing is that, you know, we work with mushrooms, we said, rather than the mushrooms, which like yeast, both are fungi, but mushrooms are single cell and like yeast. So with some supreme precision, if you like, it assembles itself into or, or digests the agricultural waste. So... I think the best way to describe it for the listeners is that we inoculate the mycelium into the agricultural waste, so namely the hemp. So 5% uh, of the product, of the mix, if you like, is mycelium, and the other 95% is the agricultural waste or the hemp. And then we put a small percentage of flour in it. So we put it into a, a big agricultural mixer to blend it all and bring it to life because we leave it in our fridge dormant at two degrees. So we have to have a very precise environment all the way through the production chain, right from when it gets delivered into our cold storage. And then we bring it out, bring it to life at 75 to 78 degrees Fahrenheit and a humidity of around 55%. They're the perfect numbers for mycelium to start growing and digesting. So the main component of mycelium is chitin. And chitin is white and that pretty much digests everything in sight. And it's not very discerning. With what it eats either so if you put pink glitter in our mix it's going to eat the pink glitter and it'll come out white so it digests it uh, and it scoops it during that process that's a quick process now people say oh, it takes a long time you can't scale it it's expensive but if you think about polystyrene all these fossil fuel packaging now they've been in the ground for 50 million years plus before we can start using it um not, not to mention the processing time even a tree to use wood has got to be up for nine years before it's sustainable. Now, we can do the whole process from start to finish in 14 days. So inoculation with the waste, um, about four days. And then we have to keep it at a certain temperature, down to two degrees. And then we get it into our factory. We then put it into the mix. We put it into, into moulds according to the bespoke shape that the client wants. And let's use seed lip, for example, a food brand we did recently. We put it into their moulds and then we, we put it into a growing tray, a bit much like a bread rack, if you like, that you use in the bakery. We zip it up and create another microclimate inside, which then gets to about 82 degrees Fahrenheit uh, and about 90% humidity. So a lot of activity in there. And that's done by the digestion of the, of the mycelium. That's when all the strength of the packaging happens in those four days. There's also about 3% CO2 there. So it's a good sequence of CO2 as well. So after the four days, we then unzip the pod, take the trays out and pop them out of their moulds and put them onto a steel tray and have two more days of the same growth and activity. As I said, we get the strength in those first four days and the next two days is to get a nice soft velvety finish. So when you, uh, hopefully when your listeners get to feel this material as we grow, they'll still see it's a very unique material and it feels very velvety, like someone sprayed a sheen on it, but it's all natural. And once that's completed, we take it out of the pod again and then we put it into the kiln to then sterilise it and get it to below 9% moisture, which then uh, lends it to be an inert composite material. So it's just, you know, it's not mycelium, and it's not mushrooms, it's not hemp, it's a composite material, which is a high-performance packaging solution. And we can have it made to any shape, really and you're only kind of limited by imagination and the size of the tray we've got so that's that's it in a nutshell really when you 
get to the last part, you pretty much kill off the growth of the mycelium by putting it under extreme heat or extreme cold? Yeah, extreme heat. That's a good question because you can do you can do cold as well. We don't. Maybe one for the future. But it's kind of a bottleneck because it's a 16-hour process. Mm -hmm. um, now, we use HVO, so vegetable oil, uh, rehydrated vegetable oil. So we're not using fossil fuels for that process, but we do like to speed it up. So there's a number of options as we scale this, potentially using microwaves, because then it could be a two, three-minute job rather than 16 hours. While the process overall is just 14 days, right? It's still quite an intensive process. What are you doing to get to a point where you are sustainable? Because obviously in the early developments of any company, it's hard to create systems that are large scale sustainable. Where do you see your weak points and what are you doing about that? To scale this, we do need to improve our efficiencies, not revolution, but evolution of the process really, and make it less labor intensive. So, we have got work in hand in that. We've got two plants opening in Europe this year, one in Sofia, uh, one in Milan, and then later one planned for Germany, and another one opening in the UK. As each one opens, there'll be much more automation going in or efficiencies. But also, we are doing a UK government grant called Knowledge Transfer Management, which is a new, uh, it sits under Innovate UK. It's not all fully signed off, but we're going through the process. So at the moment, we haven't, we haven't got the processes completely embedded to scale up as we need to. But in 18 months when it's finished, we will have world-class efficiencies, processes and productivity, which will be modular and moved into these new plants. So each time we get that and we iterate and we embed it, then it can go out to the new plants. But we know that that has to be the way forward to scale by our processes. So we have got plans. Yeah, we'll always need people to do this. It does sound intensive when you hear it, but you have to remember, out of those three processes, it's hands-off. You have to get it done, of course. You fill the trays, and we have a tray filler anyway, which can do 300 trays an hour. So that's pretty automated now. So, And then the four days, it just sits there. And then the two days, it just sits there. And then the oven, it just sits there. So whilst there's lots of stages to get to that, far more than our competition, but there has to be some trade-off to be able to replace and disrupt this terrible material was something that you can um, um, compost. Yes. So you were describing the temperature and replacing the oven with something like a microwave. Do you have other innovations in mind that could help to reduce the CO2 impact, etc.? Yeah, I mean, if you look at where we use most of the energy, you're right, the oven, the kiln, will be, even though it's rehydrated vegetable oil, it does use a lot of it. Um, we are going to capture some of that heat. So at the moment, the heat goes out to the outside world. But the next plant we do, we'll be capturing that to help keep the plant warm. Because as I said, especially this time of year, it's taking a lot of energy to keep the plant at the right temperature. It's two degrees here today, but we're at 27 degrees in the plant. So you imagine that's using a fair bit of energy. So the more we recycle from that. And we've also got plans with some, some of our clients to capture their excess heat and energy to pump into ours. So when we have really big customers, which are coming, then we'll place our plants near to their plants to capture theirs. So all these things have been thought about and they're all work streamed in their own right. But automation is the key. Because what, what, we, what we have a responsibility to do is, while customers want us to replace polystyrene, we also have to be competitive and viable. And I think you mentioned it earlier, Marie, about performance is one thing that's important, but also, you know, 
the, the companies we, we are working with, shareholders and responsibility to make a profit. So our goal is to be able to replace it at the same price. So the efficiency is important to do that, as well as reducing the carbon impact. Have you done anything in the food sector or could you describe some specific use cases uh, that are sure. already on the market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a good example of food would be with Seedlip. So Seedlip are a non-alcoholic distilled drink brand and very successful. They are owned by Diageo, who everyone will know. It's a multinational drink brand. So they did a gift pack this year. Um, so a bottle and a glass. It's more aimed for this time of year, really, because people are detoxing. Oh, got one here. Mm-hmm. So nice. the bottle goes in yes. on the right and the glass goes on the left, so I can see it. And then it's a sandwich pack. Another one goes on the top. So, so that was very successful. Yeah, so, so for listeners of the podcast, it's white. It has this porous consistency, as far as I can tell. Um, mm. Semi-porous. Yeah, semi-porous, yes. The chitin that I spoke about earlier is naturally hydrophobic, so it's water-resistant. It takes quite a lot to submerge that. So it's not completely waterproof, but I'll talk about that in a minute, but we have got plans the next stage to do that for the food industry. Uh, and it's naturally fire-retardant as well. <clears throat> not fireproof, but it's got some great natural properties, and the water-resistance being one of them. So, this is, so the seed that's been successful. We've done a very, a very big launch with Lush. So Lush went to 22 countries, actually. In fact, it's a nice story. Our first ever big order was during the, lock, the first lockdown here in the UK. And Lush and Seed showed lots of leadership <coughs> and trust in us. So Lush one was, it was over 20,000 pieces. So it was, a, it was a box and a lid for three mini packs, uh, gift packs for Christmas. And that went all around the world, the US, US, Australia, Japan. We've also, we're doing one for a big brewery at the moment, which I can't mention. I've talked about Rain Marine. We've got work going on with a record label for home subscription. So they're going to eliminate all their plastic. Again, it's a world, it's a very well-known record label. So we're about to go live with them. Um, we've got big plans next year for, in the food industry, for a fish box or a cool box. Uh, again, another uh, colloquialism as a fish box, but you can use it for, for anything really. Now, we have a big project starting next year on this and 22 million fish boxes are used in the UK alone. So imagine how many use in Europe. I think it's close to 60 million a year and 40% goes to landfill. So this can't continue. So we've got a big team. We're working with Cranford University's mycology department. We'll have a couple of scientists working on it. And a lot of it's confidential, but, you know, we do want to get the, the, the size of the wall thinner so it's more flexible, more versatile for food use. And we have some ideas on waterproofing it as well. If we can get that right, that will could potentially be a big paradigm shift in the food industry for certainly transportation of food, if we can achieve that. So... That's a big thing on the genders for next year. So you're working on also adjusting the density of the packaging because then it can be thinner and exactly. reduce transport cost. Yes. Yeah, there's that. Reduce transport costs, reduces sh- uh, space on shelves potentially, mm. um, space in vehicles. Because cost, you know, particularly B2B, they have to think about the carbon impact as well as... Uh, the sustainability impact so 
what we don't want to do is have a replacement which is you know twice as dense then ends up having twice as much fuel to take it around europe so we're very conscious of that we're working with two major retailers in the uk as part of the project and a, a fish processor so we have got an excellent team geared up ready to do it so we're confident of success but it will take us 18 months mm-hmm so, Paul, could you describe the difference between polystyrene packaging and mycelium packaging in terms of the environmental effects? Sure. I mean, first of all, um, aside from that, we have got cradle-to-cradle gold certification, which is a globally recognised accreditation or measure of a safer, more sustainable product at the end of its life. So if you compare us, there's lots of products out there that they say they're compostable, but you know, we all know they have to industrial laundry facilities to be able to do so. Ours is just breaks down in the earth. Even if you put it in the ocean, which demonstrates its hydrophobic qualities, whilst it takes 40 days to biodegrade uh, with soil, it takes about 180 in the sea. So it will go eventually, not like the little micro pieces of polystyrene that get left in the ocean. So, yeah, about 1.5 litres of oil gets used at uh, per litre for polystyrene, where we use very little energy apart from keeping the plant warm, which we spoke about, and it won't clog up landfills, the ocean and wastes and other countries when it's finished its end of life. But we have got a life cycle analysis, which we are undergoing at the moment. And once we start capturing that heat that has been wasted out of the kiln and reusing it, we will be uh, better than net zero for producing Mm. our materials. Mm. What are current limitations of the packaging? Yeah, I mean, a lot of your, li- your listeners will have one eye on this and one eye on, on the food and how they can bring it into the food supply chain. So the fact that it is hydrophobic and not waterproof at the moment can make it restrictive in the food industry. That's something we've got a great idea with, which will be part of that project next year. And then we alluded to it earlier that it has a minimum wall size of 10 millimetres. So, you know, one centimetre, it's pretty thick, really. So a lot of people will be listening, oh, well, can I make it into a cup or, you know, can I make it into a stirrer or, you know, all the things that we've all asked when we first discovered this amazing material. But the simple answer is you can't at the moment until you can get that wall size thinner. So as part of that project, you know, either during the production or post-production, the aim is to get a thinner wall size to make it much more versatile, particularly for the food industry. But what your listeners have to understand as well is that we are predominantly, our, our place in the market is to disrupt tertiary packaging, namely all these polystyrene styrofoams that we all see in our consumer electronics goods, etc. That's our that's our goal. And I think the big penetration in the food market is, of course, the fish box or the cool box. We are going through the British Food Retail Consortium Accreditation for Food, and we have to have a very aseptic environment. If you come into our factory, you'd see how clean it looks like. You can eat your, your dinner off the floor, it's that clean. It has to be to minimise contamination because it's a tricky, as amazing material to work with, it's also quite challenging in that if you don't get it right, there's contamination, right? the wrong temperature, or you're not cleaning it enough properly. Density is another issue. Which can be, it can be a limitation, but also we can work with different substrates. So sometimes people want a denser material to have more protective properties. So we then start to use different substrates, such as sawdust. So as you imagine, the sawdust particles are much thinner 
the smaller side than, than, than the hemp shifts. So you, you get a very different material. So we'd like to test that more and more. So we will be having our own mycelium inoculation plant in the near future. And then, then we can start trying different substrates, all being approved by Ecovative as our partners. And also incorporating people's waste, which is really important. That's, that's a, it, it's great. It's a very compelling story to tell the world that you've replaced polystyrene with packaging half made out of your waste. Mm. And also there's a financial impact for them as well because we pay them for that waste. So everyone wins. So how is the competitive landscape? How many companies are actually working on this? Uh, is it even possible to work on this uh, that easily without having all the patents uh, that Ecovative um, has in the field? Yeah. No, they can't. So anyone that wants packaging in any of the 27 member states and the UK it has to come through us. So there's definitely different fields of use of ecovative licensees. But in terms of packaging, that's us. And that's our main focus. Let's look at the customer side of things. What has been the response of corporates and companies that you've talked to? How has been overall the general mood and openness towards new options? And what have been their criticisms or hurdles? Yeah, I mean, the response is very, very enthusiastic. Well, I'm bound to say that, but it really is. And we've just taken on a business development manager. And I don't think she's ever had a job where there's so many incoming leads. So it's really account management. because We haven't had to do any outbound selling for the time being. So we're inundated, but now it's about processing them and then providing excellence and that, that we get repeat business. That's a real measure for us, repeat sales, and they're happy because that's a measure that they would want to come back for more. So I think people are dipping the toe in the water a little bit at the moment still for the big volumes, understandably, because we've got one plan and some of the some of the customers we're talking to about, well, you know, in three months, that's your whole capacity for a year, you know. So we can do 1.2 million pieces out of each a year. The new plant in Europe that's opening... By June, we'll be able to do 4 million. But still, people worry about, can we produce volume? So there's that. So that's why we have a very professional setup and the good governance and the board and a strong management team to be able to do that. This year is going to be a big year for us in terms of our shift through the gears because um, we only really opened operation in June because of COVID. And we've got another lockdown now, but we all know what we're doing a bit more now, don't we? So we can still operate around the parameters of keeping people safe and being able to function. So people are still coming back. So price is uh, a blocker for some companies at the moment. Now, we're not as cheap. We're comparable. We're not as cheap at the moment. But as we grow in this kind of scale growth, then that will be addressed. And being able to do the volume is the challenge. And so big clients are coming on, and you'll see them this year, but they're not full tilt to ours until we prove that we can do the volume, which we do at the moment. So that process is underway. And um, I think by the end of next year, we'll have our first customer who will have ordered over a million pieces. That's the measure, really, of, of scaling. Yes. So I know it's very different depending on what type of customer and what type of product. Compared to polystyrene, how much more expensive are you? Let's say a percentage of 30 50%. Yeah. 100, whatever. So in terms of the price, some of these early adopters are getting prices equivalent to polystyrene, but you know we will have limits on capacity soon. It's difficult to say, really. 
I think if you've got a piece of the mould's already made for polystyrene and it's a ubiquitous piece of packaging like a corner or flat piece for, for padding, then it's difficult for us to compete at the moment. But when it's a bespoke piece, our tooling costs are about 20 times cheaper than polystyrene. So let's say someone was making an engine and they had to have a bespoke piece of polystyrene made. The tooling for polystyrene is around £20,000, where ours is 1000 So there's a big difference there. So if you amortise that over a year, you, know, you can bring that price down. Plus there's a 30% tax coming in for non-recycled plastics in the UK and Europe. So that's going to have a shift on their margin. And of course, you have to look at the macro view of, you know, if how much it costs to get rid of that waste, you know, what's the carbon footprint of taking it away and going to municipal tips. So that's all part of the livestock. And but I think at the moment, it's difficult to say, but we're on the right trajectory. And I think within a couple of years, we will be price comparable cheaper. Mm, that's the yeah. goal. So Paul, is there anything that's coming down the track that uh, you want to share? Oh, good question. Yeah, so vertical farms, of course, are on the increase, not just here in the UK, but in Europe. And I suppose we're similar to a vertical farm, really, in that we're growing things with the space available to us. We're kind of a hybrid, really, of biotechnology, a bakery, and a vertical farm, really. That's probably best describe what we do. So vertical farms use a lot of polystyrene as floats, and that's something we're looking to replace. And, of course, the packaging. So there's real synergy there. Also, in horticulture... Lots of plastics are used in the horticultural industry. And also beehives. We've got two beehives in the project at the moment, which one that's going, I can't say it is at the moment, but it's, it's a nice project. It's not the industrial apiary working bees, it's wild bees. Lots of polystyrenes are used in beehives, believe it or not. So we're replacing that quite, quite easily with our solution. In fact, the beehive we've done is the most beautiful um, design we've done so far actually it's really nice and that's going to go in woods and when it drop when, of course when it's finished the bees finished it will drop to the forest floor and then it will do its job of recycling let's go to the finishing questions if you would have yeah. 50 million in what businesses would you invest it in if you wouldn't be able to invest it in the magical mushroom company i think two two things really for me green transportation and in particular tesla and i think water stocks of, is something that you know water has become finite 20 countries in Europe depend on water from other countries so and I think ESG any, any company now have a responsibility for investing in, in ESG and, and impacts on uh, sustainability so I think that those two things really I've had 50 million which I certainly haven't and I can't invest it in our own company then in short in short really three things green transportation water stocks and ESG. Yeah. What upcoming packaging innovations are especially relevant for the food industry? Yeah, packaging is a hot space at the moment, for sure. I mean, for a number of reasons. We all know the increase in home delivery and people backing away from the high street. So things have to be protected in transit. And everyone is asking for things. That, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a cliched word almost now that it has to be sustainable. Um, what does that really mean? But that is what everyone who's involved in packaging procurement is being tasked on and their uh, uh, targets. So breaking that down, really, I think there's going to be a rise, has to be in home compostability rather than industrial composting and recycling. What are magazines, books or other resources that you would recommend to listeners? 
Merlin Sheldrake's book on mycelium um, called Endangered Life is a must-read, really, mm -hmm. on the complexity um, of fungi in particular that can sprawl for miles underground. As I said, the biggest one in the world is in Oregon. You know, it's something like four miles wide. You know, it's huge. These big webs communicating with trees. So it, it's an amazing read. I definitely recommend that. I mean, my consistent read is the magazines is Modicle uh, magazine. How can listeners support you? Yeah, we are a B2B company. So we are going to find ourselves in the hands of um, your your listeners eventually. And some of the people that will be listening to hope will, will be in that industry and looking for solutions like us to release the tension they've got around their packaging problems. But it's really having the trust in us to scale this and that we can replace polystyrene. And people are very quick to dismiss these solutions as not being um, able to compete performance-wise or price-wise. But it's a fresh slate, really. Um, and look at us as a complete new solution that can perform as well and, and scale up. And help us on this journey. <laughs> Replace polystyrene. Thanks, Paul, for being on Red to Green. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. If you like Red to Green, remember to subscribe and share it with your colleagues or friends who could be interested. To volunteer in industry research, marketing or writing articles, check out redtogreen.solutions. There you will also find resources mentioned in the episodes. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.